This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Who invented Alexa? Oh, his name is Jeff, and he's an expert on voice recognition. We have a brand new interview with him and ask him, does he use Alexa in his own house? It's device and virtue. Well, hey, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. Hey, Chris, today I have an interview with the inventor of something we're all using. We're all using? Well, you're using. (laughs) So you mean you're not using? (laughs) I I don't use it on a regular basis, no. The inventor of what? Alexa. Like Amazon Alexa. Amazon Alexa. Yes. His name is Jeff Adams. And I heard his story uh, a couple months ago and I was like, we got to get him on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the secret brain behind the brain. (laughs) Right. There were many people involved in making Alexa happen. I'm sure. I'm sure. But without Jeff Adams, it might look a lot different. Or it might not have happened at all. No, this guy looks amazing because I'm looking at his bio that you sent me. Uh, natural language processing and, and speech is his whole background, right? Yep, yep. And he worked on this software that <laughs> I used when I was 18 years old. Did, wait, did you even notice this? It's called Dragon Naturally Speaking. Yes, right. Did you use it? it was I've, like, I've never used it. It was like no, it was like a software you used back with like Windows ninety eight or something. It was a really big deal because it was one of the first like speech recognition software things. Yeah, like today, twenty five years later, automated speech recognition and natural language processing are like light years from where they yeah yeah no we have siri i use you know alexa google everything i I turn my lights on and off every day i think you just talk to them as friends but whatever (laughs) but like this was a big deal when i got this and it was like really expensive software i was trying to remember how i got it my friend gave me the cd rom which is how oh man which is how you installed software wow we just lost our whole gen z audience here (laughs) it was like this cool thing it's a dragon naturally speaking on it and i was like "Ooh, it's a dragon and like you like push the little button, the CD slot slides out, oh, which man. is just a sort of a satisfying thing. Yeah. This is not a laptop. This is on a big old desktop machine. Put that on there, zoom it in and installs for like, I seem like an hour, but the software costs like $200 and I didn't have that money. Someone gave it to me as like, uh, you can use this. And wow. I was mind blown, like waiting for the install bar to finish <laughs> so I could talk to my computer. And I mean, this is going to be the whole new thing. And I installed installed it, opened up Microsoft Word, I think on Windows 98 and started talking because I was like, I'm never going to type a paper in my life. You're going to dictate everything. You've always wanted to be a dictator. (laughs) (laughs) And I started talking and it was such a letdown. Really? It was terrible. (laughs) I would say like, I don't know, like, you know, I probably started every college paper, like everyone starts college papers, like... Right. Back when the world began. Right, There was a lot of cities and technology, you know. But I mean, like, it wasn't good. It didn't understand the words you said. It made mistakes everywhere. It just wouldn't get it. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay, I got to try again. I got to slow down. Maybe I got to say each word one at a time. I gave up probably after 20 minutes. I know. And for as fast as you talk, <laughs> I mean, like I said, automated speech recognition. It's light years from where it was 25 years ago. And what's crazy is Alexa's already almost 10 years old. Are you serious? It came out in 2014. That's crazy. Which is crazy. And Jeff was already working on it starting like 2010, 2011. Yeah, he tells a story about how he got into it and... Well, he's not my hero, so I'm excited <laughs> to because maybe if Dragon didn't quite do it, Alexa obviously has. Yes, So I can't absolutely. wait to like hear what he has to say. Take a listen and we'll chat afterwards. Well, I'm here today with Jeff Adams. Jeff is the CEO and founder of Cobalt Speech. He has been a speech technologist for more than 25 years, building cutting edge technology at Nuance, Yap, and Amazon. 
He's helped build Nuance's Dragon dictation software, Yap's voicemail transcription. And at Amazon, he worked on the little project that came to be known as Alexa. At Amazon, he was the chief speech and language scientist and founded the Alexa Speech Group. Jeff, it's so great to have you. Thanks for joining me today. Adam, it's great to be here. Thank you. I'd love to just jump in and talk a little bit about Alexa. Everybody knows Alexa these days. I bought my parents an Alexa this Christmas, and I'd love to just hear from you. How did you get involved in creating Alexa? You know, it was released in 2014, but you were already working on it years before that. I'd love to hear how did this concept come to be? How did they draw you in? And was it a surprise to you? Uh, yes, it was a surprise to me. So <laughs> I was heading up research at this small company called Yap. We were focused on voicemail transcription. Hmm. And I had a team of a dozen engineers and scientists that were working on speech recognition at the time. And Amazon found us when they were looking for some technology to start the Alexa project. It wasn't called Alexa at the time, but they found us, they acquired our little company, and I and my team became then the genesis of what became the Alexa speech and natural language processing team. Wow. And, and that was pretty exciting. Yeah. So over the next three years, that was in 2011. And then 2014, we, we launched, but it took us three years of growing the team. I, I grew the team from 12 to like 80. And, wow. and now it's hundreds and hundreds. Uh, it's wow. much bigger. But that's, uh, that's kind of how I got involved. It was through this acquisition of Yap. So you didn't really know what you were getting into. When did you kind of find that out? Like, when did they tell you, hey, this is what we kind of want to do? Yeah, that was frustrating because they expressed interest in buying our company and they said, we want to do something interesting with speech. But we said, what does a book company want to do with speech? Maybe they, they have books on tape through Audible. I thought, oh, maybe it's something to do with that. But they would not tell us. It was a super top secret project. They wouldn't tell us <laughs> during the whole uh, process of the acquisition and trying to convince us all to come on board. And we all had to commit to stay on board for a period of time. Oh, wow. At Amazon, but we didn't know what we were committing to work on. It was it was touch and go. It was it was picky, and it wasn't until after the acquisition was final they brought us all into the offices in Seattle and revealed their vision at the time for Alexa, which at the time it was more like what you might see today as an Echo Dot, and then you know it grew into more of a you know higher quality speaker, and then they added screens and things over time. But uh, initially, it was just this Alexa Dot. It was just like his personal assistant that you would interact with purely by voice, no screen. Now that seems kind of normal, but at the yeah. time, it was that was crazy. I thought they were idiots. <laughs> uh, Did like, you, why would you not have a screen? Yeah. Wow. So you thought, man, voice interactive unit just doesn't make sense. I, I just thought, you know, you're putting, you know, these, why wouldn't you have, you have a phone, you've got a phone with a screen. Yeah. To make that your terminal, you know, I've realized since then the error of my ways that there's a lot of benefit in having, you know, what's now called voice first technology that, you know, you can talk to it. You can do that eyes free, hands free. I can be cooking dinner. I don't have to fish my phone out of my pocket to add how many tablespoons in a quarter cup or whatever. And, and so anyway, at the time, I did not appreciate the vision of where Alexa, you know, might go. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you said it was 2011 to 2014, you were primarily involved. During that three years, did you go down paths that turned out to be dead ends or that had to evolve in order to like reach the goal? Or, or do you feel like it was a pretty clear path most of the way? How did it evolve for you? It, you know, in this industry, in any kind of cutting edge technology, mm -hmm. your life is mostly dead ends. You know, and and that's what you spend most of your life ruling out dead ends until you find the things work. I, I don't know that we made any, you know, really bad missteps. We were very fortunate that certain improvements in the technology in the field in general had just paved the way for Alexa. Had we tried to do it five years earlier, we might have fallen on our face. But the time was just right that the stars aligned, as you might say, to allow us to to build Alexa successfully. And it took longer than our managers thought it should take. <laughs> but I thought it went really smoothly and efficiently, considering the scope of what we were yeah. trying to do. Was there a point that it went from seeming to use to be impossible to actually like seeming, okay, this is like possible? where you saw or experienced and said, oh, we could actually make this happen. Yeah, I think there were two inflection points for me. First is when I, I mentioned that meeting where they brought us into the room and described the product, 
And my first thought was, this is impossible. That technology is not there. They want to do something that is, you know, just too ambitious for for what can be done right now. And I went up to my boss at the time afterwards, and I said, "Look, I, I didn't want to say in front of everyone, but this is really the you can't do this. This is too ambitious, and I, I fear we're setting ourselves up for failure." Wow. And he was unflapped. Is that a word? <laughs> anyway, he was he was unflapped, and he just said, "Well, you know." Make it happen. We're willing to invest a lot of money and time, and we're willing to fail a, a few times before we succeed. Wow. Just, you know, just make it happen. And for me, that was inspiring. For me, uh, I thought, okay, well, maybe it's possible. Huh. Maybe you know, if they're willing to put in the resources and commit to this, maybe we can do it. Hmm. And then the next inflection point, the next point where I thought, ah, this is, this is. This is really practical. This is really going to work is when we first came up with the first prototypes. And this was a year or two before we announced anything to the public. It was okay. super secret, but they let a few of us take them home. Oh, wow. And we had the same documents saying we wouldn't let any visitors to our home see the devices or wow, or we would unplug them if anyone came over or whatever. So we had this, my wife and my son and I. You know, we all were very secretive about this thing. Put it in a cupboard when anyone came over, but just bringing it home and being able to say, you know, Alexa, play music by the Beatles, or I'm sorry, I'm probably triggering a lot of people's uh, <laughs> devices right now, but just seeing it work, there's something about, you know, going from a theoretical, you know, a design right. to, you know, the actual instantiation of a product that actually works and usually does the right thing. Wow. Know. That that like was really heady, exciting. I believe it. Wow. So do you have an Alexa that you're using in your home today? Oh yeah. I, I think I have probably eight <laughs> in, in in many rooms of the house. We we use it a lot uh, here at our house. What what do you use it for? It's a lot of mundane things. I I'll tell you, when I first got it, I used it mostly to play music because I'm a big music aficionado. I don't do that so much anymore, partly because I've just changed music hardware and software providers that I, I don't use Amazon music so much. Okay. Um but that was for me, that was, you know, ninety percent of, of my early interactions with Alexa. Huh. Huh. Um, but now I, I think the three or four main things, they're just mundane things. Like uh, when I can't see a clock, I just say, Alexa, what time is it? And I get a, a response. <laughs> or we put a lot of smart switches on our lights in the house. Sure. We turn lights on and off. And I uh, sometimes for, for entertainment, while I'm cooking dinner, I might play a trivia game or something like that. So just various things. Oh, I, I forgot. One of the main things we use it for is managing uh, lists in our house. So really, we have, uh, yeah, we have a shopping list so that I'm cooking or I'm going to make some food and I realize, uh oh, we're out of milk. I will just say, Alexa, add milk to the shopping list. And, and then when we go shopping, I just pull up the Alexa shopping list and it's all right there. Fascinating. So that's really helpful. And we also in our house, if I realize that I need something that's in the basement and I don't want to go down and get it right now, we have a basement list. So I'll say, Alexa, add dog to the basement. <laughs> and then the next time anyone goes to the basement, we just have an understanding in the family. We say, Alexa, what's on the basement list? And it'll say, you have dog food on the basement. Oh, okay. And then they bring up the dog food. Oh, my word. That's so fascinating. Yeah. That's so great. I love it. I love it. And I am glad to hear that you read for a trivia. I would say one of my favorite things with Alexa is just, hey, can I play Jeopardy? And that that's, so I'm glad to know that one of the inventors of Alexa also enjoys playing Jeopardy. I feel, feel very affirmed by that. So I'm curious just to hear more about your own background. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into speech and language technology? I mean, you've been doing it for 25 years 25 years ago was a different scene, but what caught your imagination with this area? Yes, I I started out as a mathematician. Okay. My degrees are in mathematics. And at the time when I got them, I had no idea that I would be doing anything with speech recognition. Before I got into speech, I did some work, mathematical modeling of language or statistical modeling of language, and it wasn't related to speech. And, and, and that piqued my interest. And then I started meeting people who were in speech. And so when I got out of grad school and was looking for something to do, I heard this was in, 
I'm aging myself here, but you already said I've been doing this more than 25 years. I was in 94, 95. I learned about companies that were doing speech recognition and I thought that sounded super interesting. And so I, I threw my hat in the ring, applied for a job and, and got it and moved from the West Coast to the East Coast. And, and I've been here in Massachusetts working for a series of speech companies ever since. And as a Christian, what has it been like working kind of at that cutting edge of technology? I think a lot of people see those things as kind of very different, very separate places. And I'm curious, what would you tell someone who's working in technology? What would you tell a Christian who's working in technology from your own experience? It's funny. I was talking with some Christian colleagues about that recently, and we all came to the conclusion that I well, that we don't really understand the question in the sense that why should it be different for a Christian versus a non-Christian to work in technology versus something other than technology? I think you're trying to contribute to the world in the ways that God has given you talents. So I'm trying to live up to my potential and follow what I think he would like me to do. With your background in mathematics and now speech and language, you know, some people say mathematics is the language of the universe. And obviously, as Christians, we think about God creating the world using language. Are there ways that you see your own work or your own education and background? Has it in any way illuminated what you understand about God or what you think about God? I, I don't want to make too much out of this. I don't want to say somehow I'm, you know, I'm working with something that's more divine because I'm working in language and language sure. is a divine thing. But I will say that that's probably what my faith has contributed to my interest in language because there is something very special about language. And when I, you know, when I read the Bible or, uh, or have other deep conversations about my faith, Language almost always plays an important role in that, in thinking about, you know, the theology and philosophy of, of language and how it relates to worship and prayer and, and so forth. So I think they are, there are a lot of connections there. But in the end, again, I think my faith enhances everything that I do uh, and informs everything that I do. But I don't know that I would do things a lot differently if I were in a different field or if I didn't have faith or whatever. I'm very thankful for both my skills and my faith. And when they come together, that's a special treat. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Just the idea that we can bring our whole selves into the work that we do. And there's ways that we were made by God for all these different sorts of things. And it has that great diversity. It can be in math. It can be in language. You know, it could be an art, it can be a theater, it can be in all these things, and we can bring our whole selves. And that can be a lens through which we come to know something about God in various ways. And we just, we get to explore that, which is really cool. Yeah. Can I add a little bit about that, Adam? I 100% agree with you. And, and that's uh, a very important thing for me in my life is that I don't leave my faith at the door when I come to work. I, mm -hmm. I, I bring it with me. It's my Everything I am is applied to everything I do. Uh, in the same way, I don't leave my technology at the door when I go to church or when I'm praying or whatever. You know, all of me is doing all of these things. So let me give you um, a couple of examples, if I can, uh, yeah. how faith has been a part of my professional life. At, I'll focus on my time here at Cobalt, which is the, the company I founded when I left Amazon. Okay. Um, we are a very diverse company. We're 20, 25 people, and we have people with a wide variety of faith backgrounds and, and non-faith uh, mm -hmm. backgrounds. And it's often a topic of, of informal conversation around the water cooler. Okay. We're a virtual company. We don't have a physical water <laughs> When, when we do get together, we will often compare you know, our, our faith stories and journeys. Uh, and I, I take a lot of strength from that. We're not afraid to to, you know, discuss that with each other. You, you do have to be careful in the workplace that you're not, you know, asking questions about faith in the framework of performance appraisals or job interviews or things like that. But they are, you know, they're part of us. As I say, we don't check them at the door. I've had colleagues of mine who were not Christian 
who have joined me when we're traveling and they've joined me to go to a church service or they've joined us for, a, there are a few of us who might get together for prayer when we get together. And sometimes non-Christians will join us and yeah. and that's great. And we respect each other and appreciate each other's viewpoints and, and so forth. That's awesome. I've also been very fortunate at Cobalt. We're a sort of a consulting company. We take on a lot of projects and we worked on a number of projects that are with faith organizations or uh, or that are faith-based in some way where we're providing access to the Bible for people in different languages, building Alexa skills to help people hear religious music or, you know, read a Bible verse or something like that. Hmm. And, and we've been involved in training missionaries to speak uh, a new language, you know, before they go off to an assignment. Interesting. And building like assessment tools for missionaries who are learning new languages and mm-hmm. things like that. So mm-hmm. it has been a, a wonderful experience being able to work in all these different projects over the last seven or eight years here at Cobalt. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm curious, are there one or two projects that you're currently working on that you could tell us about? This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. Are there problems that you're trying to solve with other companies? I'll, I'll say up front that some of the most interesting ones I can't tell you about. <laughs> okay. uh, they're really fascinating and <laughs> a lot of fun. And, and nonetheless, so some things that we are working on at Cobalt are things like assessing people's speech for signs of disease, like Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, there are a lot of clues and biomarkers in the way we speak. We're doing that with a partner company, Canary Speech. Okay. Uh, It's actually a spinoff of Cobalt, but now they're a separate independent company. And we do some consulting with them. So that's one area. Another area is in a completely different in uh, agriculture. Working with uh, a company in agriculture that's helping ag workers, agronomists or farmers or whatever, use their voice to document. It, it turns out there's a lot of bookkeeping in agriculture. If you're out growing corn, you spend a fair amount of time walking through the fields, inspecting the fields, looking for bugs, looking yeah. for you know the acidity of the soil or whatever. And 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 they have to do a lot of uh, record keeping as they're as they're doing this. Or working with a company that is voice enabling that so that people can, you know, the farmers or ag workers can, you know, talk about, you know, their milk cows or their corn or whatever, document it with their voice so they don't have to carry a clipboard and not have enough hands to, you know, inspect the corn and look at the soil and write it down in the clipboard at the same time. Huh. So that's that's another interesting project. There, there's a, a lot of things that I, I mentioned a minute ago, working on language assessment for missionaries learning a new language. We're, that's yeah. an project we're working on right now as well. Hmm. Interesting. I've read a bit about some of the work I assume Amazon and others are doing to interpret human emotions through voice and to respond sort of to those emotions. What's your sense of that as the prospect of that next phase? I think it's doing it to some degree, even when you whisper to Alexa now, it will whisper back, right? That's one of my favorite, one of my favorite Alexa features that I did not anticipate. Uh, Really? That all happened after I left Amazon. And when that came out, I was just really excited to see that. Yeah. If you haven't tried that, if you have an Alexa at home, Try whispering to it very softly, incredibly softly. She can hear your voice very softly and she will whisper back. So like sometimes my wife's asleep and I'm coming late to bed and I might say, Alexa, set an alarm for seven o'clock. And she will say, okay. <laughs> uh, and I, I just love that feature. 
I'm sorry. You asked me a question about that, and I just went off. No, that's fantastic. Yeah, I I do think it's a great feature, and you know, one of those. It's like, oh yeah, that of course we would need that, right? But yeah, emotion is this big category. What challenges do you see there, either technically or socially? Do you have any thoughts about it? I think it is good for our assistants. So first of all, voice assistants are just a small part of voice technology, but they're an important part in there for a lot of people is their main exposure to voice technology. But it's nice if your voice assistant, for example, can tell that you're in a celebratory mood or you're a little bit depressed or whatever and can answer appropriately, maybe be be a little bit sensitive. Now, I don't think our current commercial offerings are yet at the point where they know how to reply in a sensitive way, but at least they're they're starting to make inroads there, right? They're figuring out, oh, you sound depressed or you sound happy or you sound sad, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And and it's related a little bit to the work I described that we were doing with Canary to to assess disease because mental health is a serious concern there. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that may help someone, you know, may help us realize that someone needs to, you know, maybe be suggested to them that they go uh, see a mental health professional or whatever. So I think there's a lot of interesting work to be done on this, you know, emotional speech recognition. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, even just as I think about it, I sort of asked the question in my head, will voice assistants become better able than humans to detect some of these things. And that's certainly possible. And then how do we as humans pay attention to each other or not pay attention to each other? And just that philosophical question of what does it mean for us to really pay attention to one another and to be attentive to one another? We can build the technology to do that, you know, but it also kind of calls us into question. Like, are, are we doing that in ways that we are caring for one another as well? Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's important that our assistants can be sensitive uh, and at least act sensitive and thoughtful and caring, Uh, even if they aren't, even if they don't really have emotions. Because, you know, you hear stories of children who grow up learning to speak with Alexa, they start to emulate that and their answers tend to be terse and impersonal and so forth. And I, I think it's important for all our interactions as much as possible to be sensitive and thoughtful and caring, or at least to come across that way as a way of reminding us that we need to be that way and be thoughtful and caring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate that. It just occurs to me, you know, we call these assistants and there is a mindset there that they're assisting us. They're not replacing us. Right. But I do appreciate what you're saying, though. If they're training children in how they speak and the etiquette they have, you know, what will that look like? That kind of opens some other questions that I have. Like, I read an article from The Atlantic a couple of years ago where they reported that, you know, people will say to Alexa, hey, Alexa, I'm lonely. Did you anticipate that or your team anticipate that very personal connection? And even, you know, with children sort of engaging Alexa in a very personal way. Did you anticipate that? I don't think we took it seriously. I mean, as seriously as maybe we should have. I just don't think we thought of that. I'll tell you the other day, I was addressing Alexa and I said, Alexa, and then I realized I had forgotten what I wanted to ask her. And I knew she was waiting. The light came on and she was waiting and I felt I had to say something. And so I just said, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) And and she said, oh, thank you very much. I think you're wonderful, too. And I thought that was sweet. But, you know, it wasn't like I was, you know, emotionally needy or whatever. For me, it was just (laughs) I couldn't think of what to say. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Speaking of children learning how to interact with Alexa, a friend of mine, also a Christian, tells me that at their house, they say a prayer on the food before they eat at their meals. And it was uh, one of the children's turn. And the the child just said, Alexa, say the prayer for me. And uh, (laughs) she did not. And the parents decided that was probably not an appropriate place for Alexa to go. They they didn't (laughs) want Alexa praying for them. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Wow. What do you think are some of the challenges that still are to be overcome when it comes to voice recognition or speech technology? 
There are many, many challenges. I hope people don't have the mistaken impression that, oh, the technology is now mature and done. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done. One of the main areas is in taking what we've already done for English and extending it to other languages. Okay. There are, what, seven, 8,000 languages in the world, and right. only a tiny, tiny number of them, relatively, have any access to speech and voice technology. And and for some of them, for some people who, who don't read and write, that may be their only access to, you know, to reading or getting access to government documents or help or voting or reading the Bible or whatever. And so bringing voice technology to a greater number of the world's languages is an important area. But even within English, there's a lot that we still can't do well. Like you talked about Amazon is starting to try to you know, assess emotion. And Amazon's not alone. A lot of companies are trying to crack that, even commercially, right? It would be nice for a company to know when someone calling in for help was angry or satisfied or frustrated. And so that level of understanding of a person's emotion going beyond the words, people are working on it, but it is not a solved problem at all. There's a lot of work to be done on that sort of emotional speech recognition and just kind of analyzing speech, whether it's for emotion or for disease or for some other reason. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot of area for improvement for speech technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we're such a visual culture today that I think we underestimate just how rich the voice is and just how much meaning there is. You know, if we talk on the phone, which is so rare these days, there is such an intimacy there and there are vocal inflections and emotion that can be detected that way that I think we often forget in such a visual culture. And our technology still has to catch up with a lot of that complexity. And I think what's so cool is the kind of work you're doing allows you to recognize the depths of that complexity and illuminate it for some of the rest of us, which I really appreciate. As you look back on Alexa, on Cobalt, on your other work, is there anything you would have done differently in your work? I know that might be a hard question, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts around that. Well, you know, that's a hard question. As a Christian, I am constantly looking for ways to repent. And I don't mean any kind of self-flagellation kind of repentance, but I mean sure. improve myself. I'm always yeah. looking for ways to improve and do better, be kinder. And almost every step of the way, I can see errors that I've made. And I wish I could have gone back and been kinder to an employee who took offense or tried a different approach. Because as I say, we spend most of our life following dead ends. <laughs> uh, and it'd be wonderful to know which path to take and not have to follow those dead ends. So there's almost everything that I would do differently, but I don't think there's anything that I feel that was like a serious mistake that mm-hmm. that I needed to do differently. Because in fact, it's the mistakes, the missteps, the, the dead ends that we learn from. Yeah. And I think we need to embrace that and mm-hmm. say, we are flawed, we are human, and by the grace of God, we'll make some improvements to our lives and go forward. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that. Having even grace for ourselves to not run away from our mistakes, but actually to be able to learn from them and see them maybe as God sees them who can, you know, make good things out of things that we've screwed up. Any last thoughts that you would have? Is there any way that people can get in touch with you or learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, there are a few ways. Let me mention one uh, in particular. I do a podcast with my brother, Darren, roughly every week. We talk to someone and highlight what some company is doing with voice. And we try to illustrate the wide variety of things that are out there that people are doing. And so it'd be great for people to listen to that. It's called The Voice Box. Okay. The Voice Box. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, uh, we are always looking for interesting voice tech projects to help people with. And so if people want to approach us to get help with voice access to uh, something or analyzing voice or whatever, please reach out. We're always looking for interesting projects. If you search Jeff Adams Cobalt, you'll almost certainly find me. Okay. But you can also send something to me at jeff at cobaltspeech.com. Cool. Is there anything you think you'd want Christians to know about language, about speech technology, about Alexa? I think, if anything, there's this idea of the ghost in the machine, that when machines do something that's hard for us to understand, uh-huh. it, it's easy for us to imagine that there's something mystical or supernatural about it or something uh, like that. And yeah. 
And I just I just want to make sure that people understand that in in the case of voice technology, including Alexa or uh, Google Assistant or Siri or anything, that it's not uh, mystical. I would like to make sure people demystify that and realize it's just a tool. It's like a tool, like a hammer or a screwdriver. You may not quite understand how it works, but it's just a tool and you can use any tool for many different purposes. And I encourage people to use whatever tools they have at their disposal for the best, highest purposes that they can, that they use them to be their best selves, to be kinder, to amplify their faith or whatever. But these things are tools and people should use them in the best way that they can. Awesome. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us on Device and Virtue. It's been such a pleasure. This has been a delightful conversation for me. I really appreciate your joining us and being willing to share some time with us. Adam, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Chris, that was Jeff Adams. What did you think? Yeah, this is fun. He's <laughs> so the basement list. <laughs> the basement list was fantastic. A, I mean, it's a little lazy, you know? <laughs> hey, man, I think it's creative and I really appreciated it. I would definitely implement it. I mean, I would have had a garage list at my last place because uh, going out to the garage was a little bit of pain. And I'd mm. always forget to bring something in from there. But yeah, really fun. They put together some of the smartest people yeah. fast team in 2011 to 2014 and yeah. just made alexa happen yeah he hired 80 people in no time right right to make it, that happen yeah it, and what's funny to me my initial impression was like he's still really positive about this thing yeah he really is did you hate that <laughs> I, <laughs> no i didn't i didn't and he's like this technology I, is great and i'm thinking like adam sitting there going oh gosh think about all the, what is it what is alexa doing to us no i don't i don't think that i i think there are questions around how we use alexa but i think the technology does feel humane in a lot of ways well i know we did a whole other episode about voice assistance but i had uh, some thoughts just about what he said like for instance one of the things that really stood out to me is he talked about that he thought the idea when they sort of called him in and they wouldn't even tell him what it was about at first which right. is sort of secret which <laughs> right, is sort of right, fun. Right, right. and and they're like we're gonna make this voice unit and mm-hmm. he's like really like a voice interactive unit and he's like at the time no one was doing that right and you got to realize like 2011 i think okay the iphone came out in 2007 yeah so like at that point a screen in your pocket was new but everyone is having it at that yeah. point yeah absolutely. And, and so he's like why would we do a voice only unit i thought they were idiots he said <laughs> <laughs> right right the inventor of the alexa <laughs> thought it was gonna be a bad idea <laughs> uh. <laughs> and, and like and that got me thinking how do we see technologies that are big deals yeah do we ever really see them coming like don't do are we good at really predicting these things because i mean if this guy and he was a super smart guy that had been working on voice recognition for years but he didn't see that there was going to be a hundred million Alexas now in the United States. Right. That's not what he was seeing when they called him into the office. Yeah. I mean, having the vision and the will to make it happen, you know, they somehow believed that people would want a voice interface. Someone else, except not the inventor at first. Yeah. I mean, it got me thinking a lot about big technologies in the past. Like, can we, can we see where big technologies come from? And it triggered my mind over to, you know how we say technologies start as toys and then they'll sort of move to tools and become right. environments, right? right? And I think for a lot of people, Alexa, you know, it certainly has moved beyond the toy. Yeah. Um, I think it is very tool stage in some places. Like I use it to turn on and off my lights sure, um, and to play music. He was talking about playing music, using it for the basement mm-hmm. list. Sure. Are they getting environmental where we use them? They're so ubiquitous. They've changed life. Maybe, maybe at a hundred million things. It's not certainly not weird if I walk into my house and you walked in with me right. and I've been like, Alexa, turn on the lights. You're not going to look at me like I'm a weirdo. Yeah, right? I wouldn't think much about it. <laughs> right. You wouldn't think much about it. But I was thinking about another technology that accelerated that fast. And what came to my mind was the car Mm -hmm. like the automobile or at the time the horseless carriage (laughs) so lots of people know the name henry ford right 
invented the automobile, right? Right. No, he invented the assembly line for the Model T. The guy that actually sold the first automobile in the United States was a guy named Alex Winton, and he sold his first automobile, which was a horseless carriage, right, in 1898. And I love this because mm. I found this really old article of him telling the story. He writes a story oh, like him, in a magazine. Actually. He writes a whole, like, here's how I invented it. He was a bicycle manufacturer. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he was into bikes. And so he knew how to do two wheels. And bicycles, believe it or not, were actually somewhat new at the time. They had become right. more ubiquitous in the last 10 to 20 years prior to that. But then otherwise, you had horses and carriages. And okay. he's like, I have sort of the, the combination of this. And he comes up with this gasoline engine. Other people were working on it. And he calls his bike manufacturer and says, I need tires, but I need them like three times as big. And he said, for a horseless buggy, and the tire manufacturer just laughed at him. <laughs> He's like, you're kidding. He said, you'll have to pay for the molds. Okay. Because you're going to try this, and then I'm going to be stuck with these things, and it's going to go nowhere. And then his banker in the article said, like, <laughs> his banker called him. He heard a rumor that this guy was working on it. His banker calls him and says, you are crazy if you think this fool contraption you've been wasting <laughs> your time with will ever displace the horse. <laughs> fool contraption. That's so 1898, I feel feel like. Yeah, right? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Alex went and sold four automobiles that year. Oh, yeah. By 1920, 20 years later, there were 7 million cars on the road, and it was considered the backbone of society by the same magazine. Wow. And they said it changed everything, right? They, and wow. As you've written about, too, but I mean, cars changed the consumer goods industry, the relationships between rural and urban, changed medical care, it yeah. changed steel and oil, become both these huge industries in the U.S. I mean, it really changed. Yeah. We yeah. don't even think about cars. It's ubiquitous environmental technology. Right. It's and, so transformative. And voice control certainly is just going to keep on going there, I think, at this point. Yeah. I, Interesting. Uh, now, this, the story's a little different because, you know, this inventor of this car, he sort of believed that he could make it. I don't think he saw that it would be everywhere, though. Hmm. And I think that's the same with Jeff, that he believed he could make it, but I don't think he saw it going everywhere. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, he kind of says, well, they're willing to foot the bill. They're willing to make this happen. I believe in the technology and seeing the technology advance, seeing the knowledge base advance. And so, like, let's do it. You guys are footing the bill. But yeah, like, was there a demand for it is part of the question. Like, he didn't even see a demand. He didn't see that people would want. See, I think that's a really good, that's actually a really interesting point. A that, voice that He didn't thing. see a demand. Remember how Steve Jobs right. often said other companies would try to go find the demand and then make it. Right. He created the idea before yes. people knew what they wanted. Right. It's a technology. Right, 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 right. Right? People don't know what they want until you give it to them. And I think that's true about a lot of new technologies. They think, oh, why would I use that? Mm -hmm. And then they start using it all the time. Do you think, though, that that's like a development over the last 150 years that you have these corporate entities that are driving innovation, they're driving product development to create things that people don't want yet? You know, I look back and I think before that, so when the hammer got invented, right, everybody's looking at it. And are there people that are like, I'm skeptical about the use of a hammer? I don't think so. I think people were like, I can see the use for myself of the hammer. In the same way, the banker didn't see the usefulness yeah. of a horseless carriage. Right. And, and Jeff didn't see the usefulness of a voice interactive device. And so it was a corporate entity that said, let's create this. And then we'll create the demand like Steve Jobs was saying. I think that well, I think the hammer comparison is really hard because we're living. That's living in an era where I don't know. Maybe the first guy that walked up to a house was like, "I don't know, why, would, why do I need this?" But that probably happened one person at a time <laughs> for a very long, slow yeah. period of time. Whereas we're talking about the difference would be like living in societies, in, in in cities, in communications technologies hubs where these things can spread fast, even before the internet with a car, mm -hmm. but spreads across the U.S. very quickly. But people didn't see the need for it. Right, because they hadn't experienced it. And then I'm sure in 1920, they're like, we can't go, but we have to have yeah. one. Everyone had to have one at that point. Mm -hmm. So uh, the corporate thing is interesting, but I'm just, my point is, I think inventors are not the most likely people, whatever it is, they're either too close to it or they are not the best prophets or prognosticators about what's really going to affect all of us in our daily lives and our technology and our society. Yeah. And I'm not even totally sure 
Well, it's probably you and me. You and I are the ones that can actually like, <laughs> determine this. But, yes, I think so. I think so. <laughs> but I'm not really sure who really is. You know, Marshall McLuhan says that only the artist truly sees that stuff. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's right. I don't know. But you bring up the important part about the corporation because that yeah. was also interesting, right? That Amazon executive that pulled them outside the office. He like stepped outside the office after their big meeting was done. He's like, this is, you can't do this. Like, it's not going to work. Yeah. And the Amazon executive is like, we're going to throw a ton of money at it. Fail if you need to, but make it happen. Right. Those were the words. The will to make it happen is incredible. And the willingness to put money into failed opportunities to see it come to fruition. That really triggered in me an episode that we talked about, gosh, I don't know, a couple of seasons ago, about that question of, is technology sort of inevitable or do human beings have a lot of control? Of yeah, it? yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Does technology drive history or do people create technology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like what would happen if, if Amazon decided not to invest in this thing? Yeah. Like would it exist? Where would we be today? Right. I mean, do, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, so Siri is already existing in a yep. nascent form at that point, right? Yep. I guess so, and yeah. I don't know the timeline. Google Home is on the heels of the Alexa. But yeah, you're sort of saying, okay, well, there are other tech companies that we're probably thinking about it. Right. It's kind of in the water a little bit. Right. But to your point, without large corporations willing to put the money behind it and make it happen, it's not likely to happen. You know, I was talking to a guy recently about government tech policy, and we were talking about NASA and rockets and how the government was able to say, we're going to go to space. We're going to launch the space race and to put money behind something that a private corporation couldn't have funded at that stage in the 1950s and 60s. And it's interesting because Alexa Hmm. and Amazon at this stage is sort of able to say, we're going to pursue something in our private interest that... Other organizations, they don't have the means to make that happen. Yeah, right. And so they are actually able to push certain agendas forward because they have that capacity. Amazon is a little interesting because they're willing to fail for a couple years. I mean, Jeff Bezos has always had that long lead time and willingness to invest in something that may not pay out for years. And the the government has that capability as well. And a lot of private companies don't have that sort of impetus yes, or willingness. It's like, I mean, he said that, you know, why is a bookseller getting into this? But the reality was, is at that point, they have tons of cash. Right. And right. maybe it's an accelerator. Maybe what we're seeing with a government or a large corporation is that I sort of think that the technology is going to happen. You talked about other competitors. I sort of think we reach these points in history where someone is inventing it. Because yeah. as you, we've talked about, almost all technologies are stacks of other technologies. Yeah. So Alexa is a stack of all sorts of things. Invention, moving heads in computer power, in front of microphones, mm-hmm. the internet, the consumer technologies, it's all these things. But maybe... When we add a corporate bankroll to it, it's like pressing the fast forward button or putting on eight times speed. For yeah, I, I think you could be right. And Kevin Kelly would agree with you. He talks about technology being somewhat inevitable. We kind of have these paths that we're all going down because we're all using the same technology logic. We all have the same tech stack like you're thinking about. And when we kind of combine the same tech stacks, we're all kind of going to go down the same paths together. It's not that there aren't other paths that couldn't happen, but we're all using the same technologies. And inevitably, you're going to have people who are like, let's combine voice and a device and make it happen. Let's see what happens if we do that. And so like, we're all kind of in the same water. So yeah, it's, it is inevitable in that sense, but it's because we're all using the same logic to get there. I noticed two other things that were really interesting with your interview of Jeff Adams, the inventor of the Alexa. One is, remember when he talked about how emotional Alexa could be or not be? Like like emotional intelligence or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. Oh, Also, we have an episode about that. We, we, <laughs> that was a good one, actually. Yeah, we've covered a lot. Well, you asked him about this. I did, yeah. <laughs> I think I was asking about, like, people respond to Alexa saying, hey, Alexa, I'm lonely. 
And yeah, you know, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of emotional AI development to like be able to read people's emotions in their voice. And Alexa's developing sort of this like with, awareness, this emotional awareness. Yeah, yeah. And whether that's like a good thing. I yeah. sort of remember us talking about this in the past. And I remember you sort of thinking about, I feel like it was you worrying about <laughs> it. Like, like this, uh, picturing a world where if we created this emotional AI kind of thing, or artificial mm-hmm. intelligence, and it starts doing some of the emotional work for us, mm-hmm. that maybe we might get emotionally dumber yeah because it's an emotional prosthetic yeah yeah good language like ai assist for emotions or something (laughs) like there's a little thing flashing in our eye and it goes he's angry he's angry watch (laughs) out you know like or something and and so you're supposed to detect this more likely on a zoom call you know probably a corporate product right right right, you know your 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 employee is flustered (laughs) you know but this could stunt our emotional growth because we start having this assist Mm, mm. he had a very different point he's like yeah I think Alexa should get more emotionally intelligent, essentially, have empathetic responses, be smarter, understanding the incoming, and then also be able to do better outgoing. But he was like, he talked about kids and he's like, we've heard of children that are starting to get terse and impersonal with their responses, like an Alexa or something. And he said, I think it's really important for us to improve the interactions, to be more sensitive and thoughtful and caring almost so it's a good model for children right alexa as a model of etiquette for children as a parent for no (laughs) (laughs) but right a little bit (laughs) yeah i find that a little interesting you know where i might go one way like we should never have alexa which i wouldn't say yeah yeah, but like the logic in one direction is like see alexa is making our kids terse therefore we shouldn't have alexa he's saying we should make alexa better so that kids have a good model I mean, do we want Alexa being the model for our children? Well, it's like this, and this is this age-old question. The modeling argument was really interesting. And it's the age-old question of how much do we make the technology look and feel and work like a human? Right. Or do we make it very distinct? Yeah. And sort of very different than us. His argument was new to me because it's like, oh, children that are learning language and regulating emotions, they might actually imitate the wrong thing. And to me, the next question after that is, whose etiquette gets programmed into Alexa? Because parents might want their children to have a certain kind of etiquette, be polite, or be straightforward, be confrontational. I mean, there's lots of different ways that you can teach your children etiquette. And there might be parents who don't teach their children etiquette, but they the kids learn it from Alexa. Like My mom left a book of Miss Manners sitting in the dining room. <laughs> and then I read it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's a legitimate question because the way that we impose etiquette on our children is very like family oriented. It's very enculturated. Sure. And so the idea that Amazon might be the one to impose an etiquette for children without the consent of the parents or without the parents having a voice in what that etiquette looks like there is a bias in that. And I think it's a question that has to be addressed. I mean, that book, Miss Manners, was trying to inculcate a certain etiquette for everyone that read it. Yeah. And it was very cultural. It's funny. It's almost like reading, even when I was reading as a kid, I mean, she's talking about where the oyster fork is on the table. Right. Right. And like, do you wear gloves on Memorial (laughs) Day? You know, it's like Victorian or something. It was like sort of antiquated, but it was like a collection of her old newspaper or columns, but it was definitely a certain culture of a certain time and everyone's supposed to do it this way. Right. And it's kind of laughable to us today. Right. Right. But we have our own sort of things today. But you're even saying that individual families or subcultures or other things could have their own things that Alexa can't really sweepingly do. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a question that would have to be answered if we're going to think about Alexa being a model for children. Yeah. All right, Chris, what was your third thing? The last cool thing I noticed is just Jeff being a Christian. And you asked him, what does it mean for you to be working in technology in this way, but as a Christian? Yeah. yeah. And, And he was like, it's sort of a weird question. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I got that. It made sense. Well, I don't think he, he thought that. it was a weird question, but I really liked that he said, when I go to work, I bring my faith with me, and then mm-hmm. I, I'm the same person sort of everywhere I am. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about that sacred, secular split idea, and yeah. he's saying there isn't a split between these two things. I liked his, if I was going to quote him, I think he said, I don't leave my faith at the door when I go to work, and I don't leave my technology at the door when I go to church. 
right. or when I'm praying, yeah. which is great. Yeah, right? absolutely. And I think you and I really both agree with that quite a lot. And we like to ask questions about what does it mean to be a Christian, but we mm-hmm. both think like this should go everywhere. I like think a lot of Christians, when we talk to each other, we'd say we agree with that. Mm-hmm. We'd be like, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. But there's still a lot of weird sort of subtle things that the church does that really makes holy things and sort of secular things, like yeah. very separate. You remember Dorothy Sayers? She was a writer and a poet that was friends with C.S. Lewis. That's probably how most people would know her. Right. Um, but she had this quote. She said, work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but a thing one lives to do, of course. Hmm. And she says about the church, and nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as her failure to understand secular vocation, which like, she's really hardcore about this. She has a lot of writings on it. It's really interesting. She goes, could we be astonished that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers, like technology people, have become uninterested in religion? How could anyone remain interested in a religion which has no concern for nine-tenths of life? Hmm. And I love that Jeff Adams is like, yeah, my faith, my Christianity. And then he also talked about the company he leads now, which has people of all like different faiths and then yeah. interacting about this. He's like, that's who we are. Yeah. That's who we bring in to that space. It affects sort of our values, but also our interactions. And, and I really appreciate that example. Yeah, I appreciated the holistic feel that he had. And I even recognized in the question that, it was creating this separation that is a bit artificial and that he certainly didn't embody himself in the way that he thinks about technology and his faith. But, you know, we do a podcast because technology and faith seem so very far apart. And we've spent six seasons now trying to bring those things a little bit closer together, hoping that somehow we can see the connections between the two. And he's been doing it for 25 years. And there's a reason we say, I mean, not to pat ourselves on the back for our cute old tagline, but there's a reason we say in everyday life, and it's technology and faith together in everyday life, right? Yeah. Like we're sort of, they're both, they're ubiquitous mm-hmm. for us. They're both part of what it means to wake up in the morning, like mm-hmm. the iPhone and God. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Well, I love the interview. Uh, kudos for tapping Jeff on the shoulder. Hopefully he doesn't mind the fact that I was poking around on some of the things <laughs> that he thought, but you can tell him. Um, I'm still using Alexa strongly, and I might now have a basement list. (laughs) Okay, Chris, it's time for Vice or Virtue. Basements. (laughs) Like underground? (laughs) Yes, yes. The basements, you know, like Like the basement list. Like under your house. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so I, I was born in South Carolina originally. Right, like down really? south. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the in the in the south, people don't have basements in the south. It is not a thing. So when I moved, and we moved all over the world. You know, I did high school in Japan. When I moved back, to, we moved to Chicago, and it's the first time I've lived there. And I'm like, what? <laughs> really? There's a down. Where where does there's this, an attic where, downstairs? Where, exactly. <laughs> We're on the first floor. Where does this downstairs thing go to? It's like a mystery. The only time I had seen it is my aunt who lives in the Chicago suburbs, and we'd occasionally go visit her house when we were kids she had a downstairs but it was mysterious oh wow it was amazing so at first <laughs> basements were like mysteries it was mm. like my aunt's house they really are and it was like this positive mystery zone you know <laughs> carpeted somehow a very dark <laughs> yes. probably not allowed shag carpet but when i grew up and became a real man meaning in college <laughs> oh, we got a house just after college we're young professionals and have a house with a basement we eventually, we have a lot of guys in a house, four or five bedrooms. We put a guy's bedroom in the basement. Okay. And then it floods. Yeah. The whole basement floods. Ooh. There's one day where Oof. we go down there and the water is just everywhere. We're stepping in it up our ankles. Ugh. I'm down there for 24 hours. We are cutting carpet out with a pair of <laughs> Cutco scissors. For 24 hours? <laughs> like it's like, you know, like it's like you're, you're mopping, you're vacuuming. Yeah, like people are yeah. bringing over shop vacs. Some people yeah. have had this experience. I think basements turned into a complete vice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I mean, if you grew up in the South and you didn't have basements, you obviously did not grow up in Tornado Alley. Oh, Because, I mean, basements were in the Midwest, like, essential. Because that was how you, that's where you took shelter in the. No, seriously, I didn't know know what the siren was till college. Really? I've never heard that before in my life. Yeah. Yeah. The the siren every second Tuesday of the month. I know. Isn't that a fun fact? I still sometimes I'm like, I look around, do people know what this is? And everyone does (laughs) because they all grew up in the Midwest. I mean, when I think about basements yes there is sort of that positive mystery vibe to it 
you know, I think about growing up, my parents, we moved around a little bit and my parents like finished out the basement in a couple homes. And so that meant like, you know, completely oh, yeah, yeah. all the carpet, all the walls, you know, it's no longer cinder blocks. But I just remember helping my dad holding the sheetrock to the ceiling with my two hands, like like oh. Moses is holding the staff over his head <laughs> to win the battle. Like I'm holding the, nice. the sheetrock over my head while my dad like nails it up. And man, your arms get really tired. Yeah, right, right. I can uh, see you're holding your arms up now. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I did that for two different houses, but I know how to finish out a basement at this point. So I think that's a pretty good thing. But yeah, as I think about basements in general, I spent a lot of time in basements as a kid doing all sorts of fun stuff. I mean, it was a play area of all sorts and there was a lot of fun. I mean, you didn't grow up with a basement, so you don't know what that's like. You don't have the fond, nostalgic memories of childhood being in a basement. I don't. And so I have to say like... I assume there was a Nintendo down there. Yeah. Oh yeah, there was so many (laughs) hours of Nintendo, but yeah. So with all that nostalgia, I'm a sucker for some nostalgia. I'm definitely going to say it's a virtue because you got away with things in the basement that you couldn't get away with upstairs. And as a kid, that's a great thing. You need need that space to, to break down the etiquette, you know? Well, hopefully Jeff Adams kids are having just as much fun when they have to consult the basement list (laughs) from Alexa to go down in the basement. Great interview with Jeff Adams today. Jeff said he has his own podcast called The Voice Box. I'm probably going to go check it out because I want to see more about voice technologies and stuff he's working on now. So thanks for bringing the interview, Adam. Great to hang with you. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.